Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. Tonight on The Readout. Donald Trump said to J.D. Vance, all you do is kiss my ass to get my support. He said that after Trump took J.D. Vance's dignity from him on the stage in Youngstown. J.D. Vance got back up on stage and said, start shaking his hand, take a picture saying, hey, aren't we having a great time here tonight? All the former president's men, J.D. Vance, Herschel Walker, Adam Laxall, it is an oddball field of MAGA candidates all running this year with our democracy on the line. Congressman Tim Ryan, who walloped the hillbilly elegy hedge fund guy on the debate stage last night, joins me live. Also tonight, our readout democracy defender has a warning about the infiltration of election deniers as poll watchers and election judges and what needs to be done to fight back. Plus, new developments late today in the Trump documents case. A short time ago, the DOJ filed its response to Trump's request for the Supreme Court to intervene. But we begin tonight with what Mitch McConnell euphemized as candidate quality. Just a few months ago, the Republican Party was crowing about a red wave. Well, today, with a month left, the election really is a jump ball. Honestly, though, if you, if you look at the field of Republican candidates, it really shouldn't be. And a key reason for that is Donald Trump, the carnival barker of the MAGA party, where the price of admission to his personal circus includes letting your extremist freak flag fly. With the racism, election denialism, contempt for women, and fealty to him and only him. Those requirements have left Trump's party, which really is now his party, with the most bizarre and extreme crop of anti-democracy circus performers we've really ever seen. Like Pennsylvania Senate candidate and longtime New Jersey resident Mehmet Oz. Oz spent the majority of his adult life as Oprah's pet celebrity doctor, peddling questionable miracle drugs. Campaigning has proven to be much more challenging. Oz has spent most of his time trailing his Democratic opponent, John Fetterman, after complaining about $20 coup d'etat. Last week, Oz flew out to California and attended a fundraiser held by the in-laws of Trump's little buddy, Matt Gates. The event was held at a World War II memorabilia museum. And while there, Oz delivered his fundraising pitch standing in front of one of Hitler's cars. Clearly, his campaign didn't think that one through. Next up, perpetual candidate and, well, candidate for any office in Nevada that's available, Adam Laxalt. Laxalt currently is challenging Democratic Senator Catherine Cortez Masco, Masto, and he joined Dr. Oz and Hitler's limo at that California fundraiser. Laxalt, another Trump-backed candidate, was born in, the, born in Nevada but spent the majority of his life in Washington, D.C. wonder if he roots for the commanders. Laxalt also happens to be the grandson of the late Nevada Senator Paul Laxalt. Awkwardly enough, Laxalt is the biological son of his grandfather's longtime Senate colleague, former New Mexico Senator Pete Domenici, from an extramarital relationship. In 2018, members of Laxalt's family, who actually lived their entire lives in Nevada and never saw him around, said that he was totally unqualified to run the state 
because he has no clue what it means to be a Nevadan. Then there's Carrie Lake of Arizona. Before running for governor, she spent her adult life as a local celebrity reporting the news for a Fox affiliate. After voting for President Barack Obama, she converted to Trumpism and now believes that her Democratic challenger, Katie Dobbs, should be jailed and that Trump actually is the rightful president. This weekend, she insisted on vacuuming the MAGA king's red carpet before he showed up. What a true servant. Then there's Herschel Walker, another celebrity. Picked for his football prowess, he is currently most famous for threatening to murder his wife, fabricating lies about his biography, and publicly pushing complete bans on abortion while privately advocating for them with one of his former girlfriends, allegedly. His campaign is getting some backup from two other Trumpian circus performers, Florida Senator Rick Scott, a Medicare fraud veteran who wants to make Social Security optional, and Arkansas Senator Tom Cotton, who famously said that slavery was a necessary evil. And last but definitely not least, there's California venture capitalist and celebrity author, Senate candidate J.D. Vance, who once called Trump maybe America's Hitler. Vance, who has run a lackluster campaign, which includes highlights like claiming that women should stay in abusive marriages, realized that his only hope for political survival in the state was if he kissed Trump's ring and also something else. Last night, he faced his Democratic opponent, Congressman Tim Ryan, in their first debate. And let's just be honest, Ryan dogwalked the faux populist. J.D. Vance raised money for the legal defense fund of the insurrectionists. This is the kind of extremism, J.D., that we wholly reject. I have been a pain in the rear end to Nancy Pelosi. And if Chuck Schumer's the leader, I will be a pain in the rear end to him, too. I'm for Ohio. I don't kiss anyone's ass like him. Ohio needs an ass kicker, not an ass kisser. You're running around with Lindsey Graham, who wants a national abortion ban. You're running around with Marjorie Taylor Greene, who's the absolute looniest politician in America. This is a dangerous group, and we do need to confront it. And that's why I'm running to represent the exhausted majority, Democrats, Republicans, and independents against the extremists. While Vance was busy kissing up to Trump, Ryan has been crisscrossing the state, selling himself as an average Joe willing to work with anyone. Some people think that they have to agree with their politicians 100% of the time. And I ask these people, are any of you married? We have to stop the stupid fight. Find some common ground. And be Americans first. Now that I can agree with. And joining me now is the Democratic nominee for U.S. Senate from Ohio, Congressman Tim Ryan. Um, I'm surprised you're not under arrest uh, for that killing that you put on poor J.D. Vance. I actually started to (laughs) evoke pity at a certain point. But I I, I, I do want to ask you about the way you're running, because, you know, I, I have this theory that 2020 was an exhaustion election. And it was interesting to hear you talk about running for the exhausted people of Ohio. I think the reason that Joe Biden won, to be honest with you, is a lot of Americans were just tired. They were tired of having to follow the president's every breath, even though they still have to, every time he burps, he's still bloody much on TV. But they were tired of Trump's circus, and they just wanted to ignore the president sometimes and just have a normal life. Do do, do you get the sense that Ohio is in that mode right now? 
there's no question. Uh, the exhausted majority. And again, it's Democrats, Republicans and independents that are just tired of the fights, you know, tired of the extremism, tired of the insurrection and all of the craziness that we've been experiencing in the last six or seven years, you know, that made its way down into our our school board meetings that were, you know, people were burning masks and trying to raise hell at those meetings. So I think people are ready to say, okay, like our commercial said that you were just playing, we're not going to agree 10 out of 10. We'll probably agree six or seven out of 10, but that's a great marriage if you're agreeing six or seven out of 10. So let's figure out how to get along with each other. There's one thing we know for sure, Joy, our kids and our grandkids are going to live together. And so we need to make sure we give them a country where it's peaceful. You can solve and resolve conflict uh, peacefully. And, you know, that would be a, a great service to them. You know, Ohio was one of those states that Democrats used to contend and then they stopped contending it because they, they, they see it as a red state, except that it has a Democratic senator now. Like Sherrod Brown is the senator now. Yeah. Right. <laughs> if you had the conversation with him about the party's attitude, because I have heard tell that maybe the party isn't throwing money at your race the way they're throwing money at some of the other races in the country. Is that true? Is the DSCC funding you to the extent that you think they should. Yeah, you know, that's their decision to make. I will tell you that Mitch McConnell gave J.D. Vance $40 million and the DSCC and the Senate Majority Pack are playing in a lot of other places. Well, all I can control is what I can control. I would love for them to, you know, you know, be a part of making the message here uh, a more potent one. But look, we are raising money. We raised $17 million uh, in the last uh, quarter. We've got 350,000 grassroots supporters that are throwing us 95% of them under $100. I can't control that. I can control the message that I have, which is focused on the exhausted majority, focused on economic issues, rebuilding the middle class, talking about the importance of the infrastructure bill, the CHIPS Act, the Inflation Reduction Act. We just saw another investment today. Honda's coming into Ohio with significant hundreds of millions of dollars of an investment around electric vehicles. That's on top of General Motors and Ford and Toledo Solar uh, in four electric vehicles in the old General Motors Lordstown plant, natural gas pumping in, in Southeast Ohio. So we got a lot of good things going on. I want to keep that going and fight for working class people to make sure they get cut in on the deal. And why Washington, D.C. Democrats sometimes have a problem supporting working class candidates like me, I don't know. But all I can do is say to your audience, go to timforoh.com and send us a few bucks because we're going to shock the world here. We're going to win this race. J.D. Vance is an absolute fraud. He's wearing a tinfoil hat. He's extreme on every issue. And we're a thousand percent more Ohio than him. And we're going to win. But we need some help from those grassroots supporters. Uh, let me let me play a little bit of this ad from last night for those who didn't see it. This is you talking about this charity, this really weird charity that J.D. Vance started, and you had something to say about it last time. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I haven't done? I didn't start a fake nonprofit pretending like I was going to help people with addiction like J.D. Vance did. Literally started a nonprofit and didn't spend one nickel on anybody. In fact, he brought in somebody from Purdue Pharma to be the spokesperson for the nonprofit. The same drug company, Big Pharma, the big drug company that had all the pill mills going, got everybody addicted. One million people died, J.D. I mean, this is a guy who not only did that, but has said that 
that the states, that we spend too much federal money on the Department of Education, on education, that he, he would like to see that in environmental regulation money cut. This is somebody who does, I, I am in, interested in your take on why he is still in the 40s in a state that is so blue collar. Well, I, let me say first, Joy, that the English language has yet to come up with a word that is precise enough to describe the level of fraudulence of J.D. Vance. It, we've got some work to do to, to, to figure out what that word is. I think a lot of people default to their Republican Democrat. I think that's to be expected in a state like this, where Republicans have gerrymandered you know, we keep saying, oh, I was not a red state. It's a rigged state. The gerrymandering has been going on for a long time. It's cemented the Republican brand here in contrast, as I've said a million times, to a, a Democratic brand that doesn't play very well in Ohio. So there are a lot of people that are uncomfortable cr moving away from that. That's what we're working hard to do. But we are doing it. I think we're getting some help from J.D. Vance because he was calling Trump America's Hitler at one point, And then he went through his ass kissing routine. And then, you know, now he's the greatest president ever. Um, so they don't want to vote for him and they like me and they know I want to have a r responsible and reasonable relationship with Republicans. I'm not here to punish anybody, Joy. I'm not here to hate anybody. We need more love, more grace, more forgiveness, more reconciliation so we can move out of the age of stupidity into an age of possibility and reform. And that's why that's why we're going to win this race. Uh, Tim Ryan, a lot of people think you are running uh, one of the best uh, races in the country and you're doing it just by being sort of like normal, which is like, it's odd. <laughs> that is like, right. That is like, Oh, somebody that's just not weird. Uh, thank you very much, Tim Ryan. Appreciate you. I actually normally like weird. Thank you Thanks, very much. Joining me now is Tara Setmeyer, senior advisor for the Lincoln project, resident scholar at the university of Virginia center for politics and a former Republican communications director on Capitol Hill. And I know that because I met you, madam, when you were actually, Actually, like a Republican Republican. And I don't know if you remember, this was years ago when I was at the Grio, and that's when I met you. And it has been interesting to watch you with the Lincoln Project have to contend, you and, and Rick Wilson and other folks that I've known for a long time when y'all are Republicans, with what's happened to the party. I want to play something for you. Do you remember, you remember Ron Paul used to run for president like every four years he'd run? Yes. And they, he would win this straw poll thing so the, you know, the base would enjoy him. But he never had a shot of being president. This is Ron Paul advocating for letting people drink raw milk and getting rid of FEMA. Here's Ron Paul. So now what the FDA is doing and why they feel so compelled to protect you, they will arrest you if you start drinking raw milk and you happen to cross a state border. What is so dangerous about you making your own choice about whether or not you can drink raw milk? I think we ought to vote for the right to drink raw milk. Why should we take money from somebody else who don't get the chance to live on the Gulf and make them pay to rebuild my house? It's a moral hazard to say that government's always going to take care of us and we do dumb things. I'm trying to get people to not do dumb things. Besides, it's not authorized in the Constitution. Tara, this guy said uh, th th this guy said that those who do this is another quote from him on AIDS. Those who do not commit sodomy, who do not get a blood transfusion and do not swap needles are virtually assumed of not assured of not getting AIDS unless they are deliberately infected by a malicious gay. That is an actual quote. Uh, he said nearly all black men in D.C. are semi-criminal or entirely criminal. His child, his son, who made up his own certification to be an eye doctor, is now a United States senator. 
and he would be completely viable in today's Republican Party. What happened? Uh, yeah, yeah. Ron Paul was was on an island of, of his own there uh, for many, many years. Plus, he was really more of a libertarian. But yes, you're correct. He would be welcomed with open arms in today's Republican Party um, because they've lost their minds, which is a lot of the reason why I left the party in 2020 after Trump decided that he was going to deny the election. And Republicans went along and enabled him in violating the Constitution. I said, that's it. Enough is enough now with these people. But what has happened is that they've recognized now, and we, I mean, it's a much longer conversation about yeah. over the decades, how the party got here. But party leaders who were in a position to put a stop to Donald Trump, they decided not to. They decided to kiss ass instead of be, you know, ass kickers for the Constitution, which is what they think, to steal, you know, a phrase from Tim Ryan, because that's what they thought they could do for raw power. And instead, it has undermined the democracy now, and we are in an existential threat to our democracy, and it's being fueled by one party here. And it breaks my heart to watch it happen because it makes it feel like the 27 years that I spent there fighting for conservative principles that I thought were real and I thought were that I thought that mattered, that would help people make better, better policy, better people's lives, that all of that was BS for these people because it was it's got thrown right out the window as soon as a demagogue came in that they felt they had to uh, attach, you know, ride the coattails of in order to maintain political power and nothing else mattered. Thus, here we are with candidates yeah. today who are running on authoritarian and illiberal, anti-democratic uh, platforms, and the Republican Party is cheerleading them as if, you know, they are um, somehow <laughs> admirable, qualified people. You know, let, let's really quickly talk about Herschel Walker, because, you know, the, the lieutenant governor of Georgia said it accurately. The only reason he's the candidate is he's Trump's friend, he's a celebrity. But you now have Tom and Cotton, the, you know, the, and they need a black guy, right? Let's just be real. This is their mm -hmm. version of identity politics. He now has all these national Republicans parachuting in Tom Cotton, who's pro-slavery. He was like, slavery wasn't bad. It was a lesser, you know, it was necessary evil. They, these guys are flying in to save him, even though, according to their ideology, he's a murderer because he paid yeah. for an abortion. Yeah. How I, does I mean, that attract evangelicals? I just absolute support. You know, the white the, evangelicals. The Right. The, I mean, the fall of evangelicals has been one of the most infuriating, hypocritical aspects of this uh, era of Trumpism. Shame on them. They were supposed to be the moral guardrails. They were out there as the moral majority in the Christian coalition in the 90s, you know, going after everyone, everything from rap lyrics to uh, family values. And now today, um, after they got their four-decade wish of overturning Roe v. Wade, they are—Dana Lesh said it out loud. She said the quiet part out loud, that they don't care about the hypocrisy. They don't care if you're a good person. They don't care if you're a liar. They don't care if you're paying for abortions, which is supposed to be, a, you know, a, a absolute apostasy. No, they don't care. As long as he gets the control of the Senate, it's about pure yeah. power. She said it. And that should expose, we should expose them for the absolute craven political yeah. frauds that they are, because that's what they yeah. are. And all of these Republicans who are standing next to Herschel Walker should be ashamed of, the, of themselves, too. And I hope Democrats continue to use their words against them the way Tim Ryan did to force them to be held accountable for it, because the American people deserve better. They don't deserve hip hypocrites that are anti-democratic. Yeah. You, you said shame, but Rick Scott is down there. Rick Scott literally committed like epic Medicare fraud. Now he's like, we need to like get, solve Medicare fraud. It's like, you know, it's, 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 it's anyway, Tara Setmeyer, we are now not only are we, are we in agreement that we're on opposite, opposite ideological sides, but our hair is now the same color. Look at how we've evolved, <laughs> my sister. Thank you very much. Yeah, amen.
Thanks, See Joy. See you soon. Cheers. Like a reminder, today is the deadline to register to vote in Ohio. You can register in person until 9 o'clock tonight online. Registra- online registration will be open until midnight. Early voting in Ohio begins tomorrow. Tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow. Today is also the deadline to register in Georgia. You have until midnight to register online. Early voting in Georgia begins next Monday. Prepare to vote. And if you live in Arizona, you have until the end of the day to register to vote today. For more information on registration, mail and early voting in your state. Scan the little QR code there on your screen or go to the NBCnews.com slash plan your vote. Up next, up next, Trump's lawyers find themselves in legal peril. It's bad enough that they usually don't get paid. <laughs> I, I didn't read that. Bad enough that they usually don't get paid. Now they're in legal trouble too. We'll be back. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. In just the past few hours, the Department of Justice filed its response. Here it is to Donald Trump's Hail Mary request of the Supreme Court to intervene in the DOJ's investigation of the classified documents that he kept at Mar-a-Lago. The DOJ asked the Supreme Court to reject Trump's request to allow the special master reviewing documents to have access to those marked as classified. Simply put, the DOJ says that Trump's claim has no merit because Trump has no plausible claim to the government's own classified documents. And the fact that Trump's legal team cannot show how he would suffer irreparable injury if those documents are withheld from the special master. It's now up to Justice Clarence Thomas to decide whether he alone wants to answer Trump's plea or refer it to the full court. Thomas was the only Supreme Court justice to dissent when the court rejected Trump's bid to withhold White House documents to the January 6th committee. And it comes a day after we learned that one of Trump's lawyers, Christina Bob, has not only spoken to federal investigators about the case, but is already naming names, specifically as it relates to her signed letter to the DOJ in June, certifying Trump had turned over all classified material in his possession, which, of course, was not true. New details from The New York Times today indicate Bob told investigators that she was still fresh in her new role on Trump's team when another of Trump's lawyers, Boris Epstein, called her the night before she signed the document and put her in contact with yet another Trump, uh, one of Trump's lawyers, Evan Corcoran, who not only drafted the letter, but pushed her to sign it, something apparently he wasn't willing to do himself. The Times notes that she later complained that she did not have a full grasp of what was going on around her when she signed that document, according to two people who have heard her account. Joining me now is Barbara McQuaid, former U.S. attorney and professor at the University of Michigan Law School. I want to start there with Christina Bob, because if Christina Bob is handed a document, it's an attestation saying this is all of the classified documents, all the documents have been turned in and it isn't true. 
And she says Boris Epstein and this other lawyer, Corcoran, pushed her to sign it, drafted it, and she just signed it, not really knowing what she was signing. Who's in legal trouble here? Yeah, it's it's interesting. You know, she also added the words joy at the bottom uh, to the best of my knowledge. Right. Uh, she inserted those those words. So, um, you know, I, I think it's irresponsible of a lawyer to sign something like that if she doesn't know whether it's true or not, just based on the say so of someone else. Uh, but, you know, the, the reporting is that she met with the Justice Department. And if she was entirely candid with them about that, then it seems quite possible that she herself is trying to position herself as a witness mm. as opposed to a defendant to say, look, I signed this. I wrote there. I didn't really know whether this thing was true. And these other guys put me up to it. You know, it's really curious, isn't it, Joy, that Boris Epstein and Evan Corcoran all said, here, we wrote this up, but you sign it. We want right. you to sign it. Uh, and, and then and then that she did so. So it may be that they're all in trouble, but it seems to me that the strategy that she and her lawyer are pursuing now is to be a witness for the government, to be uh, candid with what her role is and to point the finger at them. Um, yeah. And if they put her up to this, knowing it was false, they could have uh, some legal problems of their own. Yeah. Did she met Boris Epstein? He, he, he couldn't hand me anything. That I was, I'd be, I'm no, no offense to him, but I mean, <laughs> this guy's who you're, it's your, that's your quarterback of the team. I want to ask you about this. I, I read this as a layperson. I will be honest. Uh, but it reads to me as so straightforward and simple. And this is the government, this is the DOJ's response to the Supreme Court saying they should uh, they should not allow Donald Trump's to his his pet lawyer to force the classified documents into the hands of the special master, despite the fact that the, the district court said no. I don't understand. One of our producers had this question. And I, I agree with this question. How can what would be the purpose on Trump's side, pretending that you're Trump's lawyer, of, of forcing it, forcing the special master to have to review these classified documents when the government has already made it clear there's no reason for him to, 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 to review it. They, Trump doesn't own them. Why would they be so insistent that the special master must review these documents? I think there may be a couple of theories here. One is they want to see for themselves how much trouble Trump might be in, and so they want to see those classified documents. Now, at some point, if Trump had them in his possession, I suppose arguably he knows what's in them. But, you know, this is uh, it's something like what now we're at uh, more than 30 boxes or so of documents. And so I think they want to see exactly what's there. So if the special master gets to see it, then they get to see it because they have to make their arguments about what is in and what is out of uh, the government's purview. Um, I also think that there's also a stall tactic that's going on here. The longer they can delay this case from being charged, you know, the longer it's tied up in all of this process, uh, they, they may be able to uh, drag out the inevitable criminal charges and then drag out the day that a trial might be held. Because if they can uh, stall out, run out the clock until January of 2025, there could very well be a new occupant of the White House who could issue pardons. And so I think those might be a couple of the reasons that they might want to involve the courts in this process. Let me ask you this question, Barbara. If I go in your house and I steal your personal documents, your passport, personal family photos, things that are perfectly mean, they're yours. They're your things. I steal them. Have you ever heard of a situation where I can go to a court and demand that I get to see them again? I want to review them again. I want to look at your personal family photos, your personal photos, your photos of your kids, your photos of your mom. I want to see them first before anyone can even possibly indict me for theft. I'm now possibly going to be indicted for robbing you, but I want to see your stuff again. Have you ever heard of that? No. And in fact, Joy, the normal process, as the government cites in its brief filed today, the normal process is 
if charges are filed and if the government wants to use those documents or whatever it was that was seized from the person's home as evidence, that is ordinarily the normal process and the normal point where you would make some legal argument for suppression of those records. And so what's what's most absurd here is that, as you say, this is essentially stolen property. These aren't Trump's own items that could have evidentiary value. These are items that he stole from the office, um, and he wants to see what's there. His time will come after if and when charges are filed. Yeah. I mean, in, in my analogy, I'm Donald Trump and you're the federal government. And this judge that Donald Trump likes so much has made the insane argument that you just heard me make. And I don't get it as a layperson. I don't get it at all. Barbara McQuay, thank you so much. I really appreciate you helping me sort all this stuff out. Coming up next, uh, tonight's readout democracy defender is sounding the alarm on the wave of election deniers working as poll watchers. Stay with us. Alpha One Niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops on. TVs streaming. Game console consoling. Smart thermostat set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera. Whoa, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go. You are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet. Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film The Aviators now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow. I felt like it was all my fault. Like, if I would have never decided to be an elections worker, like, I could have done anything else. But that's what I decided to do. And now people are lying and spreading rumors and lies and attacking my mom, my only child. That was Shay Moss, an election worker in Fulton County, Georgia, who, along with her mother, Ruby Freeman, were the subject of the former president's lies about fraud in the 2020 election. In fact, Reuters revealed that a publicist for Kanye West traveled to Ruby Freeman's home, pressuring her to confess to bogus election fraud claims. It's just one of the many instances of threats and harassment against innocent election workers. And with the midterms just a month away, officials are taking additional steps. Reuters reports that enhanced security includes everything from installing panic buttons and hiring extra security guards to holding active shooter and de-escalation training. The Justice Department has investigated more than 1,000 threats aimed at election workers. Last week, a Nebraska man was sentenced to 18 months for online threats against Colorado Secretary of State Jenna Griswold. Our democracy defender tonight is another Colorado election official sounding the alarm about a looming threat. A surge of election deniers infiltrating the ranks of poll watchers and election judges. Some have ag- antagonized or threatened or threatened election workers, wrongly rejected hundreds of ballots. And one man in Chafee County even tried to steal a password to the election system last year. Chafee County clerk Lori Mitchell told the Denver Post, every day you wonder what fresh hell is today going to bring? 
These things are coming out of nowhere, and you're just trying to do the best you can. And Lori Mitchell joins me now. Lori, thank you for being here, and thank you for being an election worker. Um, it shouldn't be a job that requires you to have a panic button or, you know, active shooter training. But here we are. Um, there are new laws in Colorado, in, in the Denver Post, the old paper I used to read back in the day when I lived there, says these laws require new security measures for elective systems, makes it a crime to threaten election officials or publish the personal information online to harass them. Is that enough? Well, Joy, um, it, it possibly could be enough, but uh, probably isn't. Um, we still have a whole hot bit of crazy out here in uh, Colorado, and um, we're not quite sure uh, what tactic to take. So we're trying to hit it from all sides. Um, we're just trying to enhance our security and protect our people. We're trying to get our voters to continue to listen to to us as their trusted source of information and not uh, listen to the lies of the grifters. Um, we have in, uh, have enhanced our security training for our election workers, as well as uh, we do have panic buttons. We um, we're doing de-escalation training. We've uh, enhanced our law enforcement guides to to uh, and all of our other law enforcement partners for uh, for elections and, and make sure that they know what the laws and the rules are. And uh, we're just trying to do the best we can so we can defend democracy. Do you have issues of people saying, I want to sign up to be an election worker, and then it kind of turns out that they don't believe in elections, right? That they are one of the people who believe in the conspiracy theories and they want to work for elections in order to overturn the election. And what do you do if somebody like that presents themselves? In Colorado, uh, the way we uh, seat our election judges is through the parties and then also unaffiliated independent voters can uh, can sign up to be an election judge. And so there's a process where they become um, actually county workers. And uh, we did have uh, a couple of folks this last uh, during the primary in June who wanted to sign up to be election uh, workers. We um we had them to come to fill out their paperwork for their payroll and they wouldn't even give us their IDs. And then they went down to the vote center where they were going to work and were just questioning everything when they didn't even know what the job was about or where they were going to be assigned. And so obviously uh, red flags went up and I yeah. called the party chair and said, we are replacing them. We're seeing things like harassment, uh, you know, lawsuits where people try to sort of undermine the results of elections, just a full assault on elections. And we're also hearing a lot of anecdotal stories. and There's data that people are quitting. Are you guys having trouble keeping people on the job? It's a thankless job. It's not a high paid job. Are you having trouble keeping election workers? I've been really lucky here in Chafee County. We have a, a community that's very civic minded and uh, we actually uh, have more people uh, trying to be poll workers signing up. Um, we have a wait list now for the first time ever. And uh, we're really proud of that. Well, I will tell you, I love the poll workers are the are the, the the core of our democracy. And I always have loved going every time I go to vote and seeing the same ladies there every time they get to know your name. You know, poll workers are like the best other than librarians, because I love librarians. But I do love I do love the poll workers. So thank you for what you do. Thank you for being a democracy defender, Lori Mitchell. And up next, the open racism that we are seeing from the GOP, the Republican Party today, echoes the hate that Italians face. 100 years ago, which ended up being the impetus for a certain holiday. I will explain when we have a little history readout after this short break. 
So yesterday was Columbus Day, better known these days as Indigenous Peoples Day, which actually is more appropriate since indigenous people have been on this continent for millennia, while Christopher Columbus never actually set foot in North America. I mean, the closest he got to the current U.S. were the Virgin Islands in Puerto Rico, where he became a brutal, dare I say, genocidal governor of the then Spanish territories. But over the weekend, I, in my nerdery, got to wondering, why do Americans celebrate Columbus Day in the first place? Since he no more discovered America in 1492 than I discovered these TV cameras that were sitting here when I got to the studio tonight. Well, like far too much in American history, it began with a lynching, which was the subject of a fascinating New York Times Magazine piece back in 2019 by Brent Staples. The piece points out that in the original conception of the United States, Congress envisioned a white, Protestant, and culturally homogeneous America when it declared in 1790 that only free white persons who have or shall migrate into the United States were eligible to become naturalized citizens. That vision certainly didn't include the indigenous original residents of this continent or the Africans that these, you know, Europeans carted over here in cattle ships as slaves. And it didn't include Southern Europeans either, like Italians and Sicilians, who, because their complexions were darker and they tended to live and work with and near African-Americans, including working in the fields of Southern sugar plantations, and because they sometimes intermarried with African-Americans, they were often demonized as late as the 19th century as uncivilized and racially inferior people, too obviously African to be part of Europe, and as such racially suspect. They were sometimes shut out of schools, movie houses, and labor unions, or consigned to church pews set aside for black people, described in the press as swarthy, kinky-haired members of a criminal race, and derided in the streets with epithets like Dago and Guinea, spelled just like the African country, which was a term of derision applied to enslaved Africans and their descendants. Which all kind of sounds like the themes of a Tommy Tuberville rally, right? Except the targets aren't black. Italians were also, after black Americans, the second most likely group in America to be lynched. But unlike black Americans who fought for more than a century to get an anti-lynching law passed by Congress, but didn't get one until this past March, when 11 Italian immigrants were lynched by a frenzied mob in New Orleans in 1892 after being acquitted or mistried in the murder of the New Orleans police chief, a lynching that the New York Times celebrated, by the way, and prompted a diplomatic blow-up that brought Italy and the United States to the brink of war. The Italian government demanded federal action, and President Benjamin Harrison responded with a proclamation in 1892 announcing a one-time Christopher Columbus Day celebration of Italian heritage, which in 1971 became an annual federal holiday a celebration that helped Americans to think of Italians not as black-adjacent criminal element who came to take proper white Americans' jobs, but rather as white and acceptable. And Columbus Day isn't the only history thing that we tend not to learn the true origins of in school, even before Republicans started banning books. When we come back, what Americans also fail to recognize about our relationship to Europe. One thing that Republicans and Democrats have in common, ain't much, is that they're all trying to basically be like, more like Europe. Recently, we've seen leaders on the right dip their little tootsies into European fascism, embracing countries like Hungary and celebrating the election of the new right-wing Italian prime minister. 
While many on the left look to Scandinavian countries with higher minimum wages and more generous social benefits like universal health care as a model. We in the U.S. like to view Europe as if they are our, like, cooler, older sibling. But the reality is they're more like distant cousins. As author Samuel Goldman writes, if you look at our country's history, geography, religiosity, even our murder rates, the United States actually has much more in common with South America than Europe. And Samuel Goldman joins me now. He's the associate professor of political science at George Washington University. I'm so excited that I found your article through the great Adam Serwer. He is the person who turned me on to it. And it really encapsulated something I thought about a lot, that Americans sort of style themselves as like a little Europe, but we really are more of a American, almost Central American, South American country, like more in common with South and Central America. Can you explain that thesis just a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I think rather than thinking of the United States as Denmark that failed, we might think of ourselves as Brazil that works. Um, <laughs> since we have a similar history, including uh, histories of colonization, uh, migration, and enslavement, and we've really developed uh, as a new society in a new place rather than a more consistent, stable, and homogeneous one. Yeah. You know, the fascinating thing about it is Americans, you know, on the right, you see people like Steve Bannon running around. They're trying to get involved in sort of Euro fascism. And, and you know, I, I mentioned on the left, you do see the sort of looking to Scandinavia as like a model. But Europe has this ancient, this old, old, old history, which they recognize. They don't tear their buildings down. They, they have it. And they were the colonizer. We were one of the big slave plantations, right? Giant slave plantations, just like the Caribbean, like South America, like you said, like Brazil. Why don't Americans sort of relate more to the Americas, do you think? Why is there this yearning to sort of be a part of Europe when we're not? Well, Americans have, going back to the 18th century, an inferiority complex about people we felt were our older brothers or parents. Um, and that's encouraged Americans to try to imitate Europe or try to adopt European manners. But at the same time, there's a tradition of Americans who have really reveled in American opportunity and American culture um, and have tried to develop a different way of being and a different way of living uh, to European models. Yeah. You know, and I feel like sometimes the resistance is that a lot of the things that make America America have to do, to be honest, with slavery, to be blunt. You know, our, our, the, the most American music is jazz, which is created by African-Americans and, you know, pr promoted and pushed and participated in by Jewish Americans largely, right? You have this sort of ethnic identities that, that make our food our food. We have, like, the things about us aren't things about Europe. They're things generally about some things we don't like to deal with. What do you make of this resistance to dealing with history? And it's getting worse. Well, history it can be uncomfortable, and certainly there are elements of American history that people don't enjoy talking about. Um, but I think we also have to recognize and celebrate um, the benefits that it's brought to us, uh, including cultural benefits in our music, in our food, in our, in our uh, film, and other popular culture that really are the things that people around the world recognize as distinctively American. You know what's ironic about it? And reading your piece, it just it struck me the irony. When you talk to a lot of people in Europe, they want nothing else than to come over here, right? They're, they're like, no, we, we want to be a part of this sort of nouveau kind of culture that America is. But I also worry that we're ignoring the 
problems of countries like Brazil, which to me reflect a lot of what we might be facing. We are headed more in the direction of the Brazil model in terms of where our democracy, unfortunately, looks like it's heading. Do you agree with that than we are anything like Britain or France? There are, there are serious risks. And I, I, as I say in the piece, I, I don't think it's fair to single out Brazil because a lot of the same tendencies can be seen in many other places, including Absolutely. ethnic and political polarization, uh, breakdown of state uh, capacity um, and other and other problems. But I don't think looking to European models is going to provide the answers for us, whether they're the Scandinavian models favored on the left uh, or the Central and Eastern European models that have become uh, uh, popular on the right. Do you have, do you have a, a theory as to why Canada has somehow not caught these afflictions of sort of, you know, internal loathing that we see here? Or have they? And I'm just maybe not noticing it. I think Canada uh, has uh, many of, of the same um, problems and tensions that we face, but we don't notice because we don't pay a lot of attention uh, to, uh, to, to, to Canada. Um, one, one difference um, is that they share a border with the United States rather than with uh, Central and South America, um, and that has prevented the sense of chaos that I think um, really makes our immigration discussion yeah. as, as polarized and passionate as it is. It, this is fascinating. Thank you so much, Samuel Goldman. I hope that you'll come back. Thank you. I really appreciate um, the chance to talk to you tonight. That is tonight's readout. When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. New developments in the legal drama surrounding former President Donald Trump. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts. Lots of news of all kinds going on right now. And the latest updates on the 2024 election. The rematch is on. It's Trump-Biden part two. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com app.